Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest is skilled in corporate social responsibility, economic sanctions, anti-corruption, dispute resolution, and big data analytics. He's been in his current role for three years, executing change and embracing the use of data in decision-making. The Global Director of Ethics at Anheuser-Busch InBev, Matt Galvin. Welcome to Left Foot. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the show. Matt, in 2016, Anheuser-Busch InBev acquired SAB Miller, adding 50,000 employees in 65 more countries to their operations. What change initiatives were priority for your in-house legal department following or leading up to that acquisition? Well, I think from a compliance standpoint, there were two main ones. To consummate the acquisition, we had to get something in the order of about 29 different regulatory clearances for competition. But there's also a matter of of other compliance or core compliance and and corruption. SAB Miller was a much less centralized organization than AB InBev. And it's 65 countries, but it was really like 24 separate businesses in many respects, 23 of which were in jurisdictions that were high risk for bribery. So a big part of the role of my team thinking beyond close was how do we not just you know, take on these businesses and get clearances to have them, but how do we operate them in a way that would be compliant to U.S. standards under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act? So, and how much did risk have to do with your approach? I mean, was that, did that play more than actually dealing with the volume of what you were trying to accomplish? Was risk the highest priority? What kind of targets did you have for both risk and completion as well as you know any kind of efficiencies you could build in? Well, we started by thinking, okay, let's take a look at the map where they are. And we literally created a digital map. And then we overlaid that with, you know, what a lot of people might start with in the compliance space of you know, corruption perception index scores. But yeah, you know, that's a pretty basic map and you can pretty much get that, you know, off the web if you went to the Transparency International website. So we overlaid a, lot, a bunch of other metrics, size of business, size of population, past acts that could be kind of compliance issues that we found from legacy audit reports. And we began to build a more dynamic map, but that was just the beginning. We also then overlaid that to where we could get access to core data systems. And we looked and said, well, normally, or kind of historically, I should say, when a company was going to look at compliance risk, they would look at maybe what they spend money on. And they'd send teams of lawyers and accountants around the world, and they'd take snapshots of data for some of the businesses. Well, here, that didn't make sense for a couple of reasons. One, a snapshot of data, that's exactly what it is. It's a historical snapshot. We wanted to get something living and breathing and found ways to not just map the risk, but map our access to the data within that risk, particularly accounting spend data. And then we said, well, we get that. Why don't we start running metrics to see what risks we see within it and overlay those risks within the accounting spend data on those other risks, those ambient risks that we started with. And that's a terrific answer. Thank you. I appreciate that. How did you deal with the volume? Because to me, that just sounds like a huge volume and it sounds like it would take a while. What was, or there would need to be a really tight project plan. Was there anything related to volume or efficiency that Possibly the use of data and analytics helped you kind of figure out where you felt there was maybe the most risk and then address those issues first and then step back from there. What, from a project planning perspective, did you put in place? Sure. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm talking about overlaying accounting system data as if that's nothing. And, you know, I think in data in terms of sets and systems. And so we, in the first year, it took it was 22 different data systems. 
but those are you know constellations of billions of data sets. There's you know hundreds of millions of transactions, if not billions. And we did have to kind of way to tackle that. Now, I'm a lawyer by background, and as a lawyer, actually, I think I grew up in maybe the worst time in the history of humanity to be a lawyer, where we, you know, I remember early on, you'd have data sets of 100,000 documents or something. And, you know, as a baby lawyer in a department, the a partner's job was to ask the associates to make that, you know, hundreds of thousands of documents into a binder. And, you know, that request to make a binder out of information didn't really change, even though the amount of data went from hundreds of thousands to millions. And now you don't even measure data that anymore. You measure it in things like terabytes. I don't know what a terabyte is, but I know it doesn't fit into a binder. So, you know, taking these data sets, we looked and said, well, instead of just taking a random sampling of 30, or instead of looking for just basic keywords and things like that, what if we actually simulate what a lawyer and accountant of roughly 10 years experience would do and distill that into, you know, what factors would they look at in the data set? And then you take those and you overlay the data and then you start to prioritize and risk-base all of them. And then again, you can filter it again through those other ambient risk scores that I mentioned. You know, what country is it in that the transactions in, say, Nigeria should be looked at and weighted heavily more heavily for risk than the ones in, say, Australia? And you start to get a pretty good picture of where your risk transactions are and a pretty good idea of how you're going to prioritize the efforts of your team. There you go. So tell me, was this what you're describing? Is that what is called the BrewRite solution? Is that the culmination of all the work that you did around this project? BrewRite, or is that a component of developing BrewRite? Yeah. If you're going to look at BrewRite as a structure, what I described was probably the first, you know, the bottom few floors of the structure. And, you know, it's one thing you start testing data for metrics for risk and you say, okay, what risks are you doing? And so you run risk for corruption, you run risk for fraud, you run risk metrics for anti-money laundering risks, and they all look slightly different. Now, the first version of our analytics program was super powerful and it was a pilot case that we did on our old Brazilian business. But one of the biggest drawbacks of it was that we would test for any amount of these risks that I just described and take a big data set of Brazilian businesses massive. But there was a single interface and you could filter up or down to find risk in any one way. And that's really cool. And I liked it a lot. But then I looked and said, who could I possibly teach to use it? I mean, it would take me six months to for like really show someone replicate workflows. And there's other issues too. I mean, how do you audit and how do you case manage multiple users in a single database system like that? And so what we did was, and this is a fairly big step, and this is the step towards what we now call BrewRite, is we took those underlying layers and those underlying data sets and that underlying computational layers that's running all those different computations for different problem cases. And we took it and we put it into 12 different workflows. And so if a user went on to visualize, there's a single workflow to say, okay, which vendor should we diligence? There's a single workflow to say, which vendors look you know, hot for fraud or corruption? There's a single workflow to say, you know, where is my anti-underlying risk and so on and so on. So this it was really, I view it kind of we're in year two of a five-year plan. So year two is building out these workflows and developing the visualizations that we can drive specific workflows for specific problem sets of teams around the world. And now a word from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Go to audibletrial.com backslash left foot and download a free title to start listening. That's audibletrial.com backslash left foot. 
So what was the response? What was the response from the different business partners across the organization? What was the response from the people who are now looking at this information? Good, bad. How did they respond to it? There's any amount of different responses. I mean, whenever you're trying to do something different, you can expect a varied set of response. And the first was probably shocked that you know the legal department was the one that front ran a large data aggregation project. You know, usually that you know everyone you know it's a problem in any organization. Like who's gonna these projects that require multiple functions to work together? They might have no function that's a single owner. Here we took the view that. The best thing that we could do for compliance, the best thing that we could do for ethics was to drive transparency for the business. And then, you know, we'd risk or look for specific risks that we want in compliance, but then we'd enable other functions to maybe do their job a little bit better. And so as we went, you know, initially solutions, you know, there were people in solutions that said we were running a shadow IT program. But over time, we became to be very strong partners and they became huge supporters of the project because they realized their other business users all wanted the same thing. I mean, it's fairly, you know, common that with people to say, well, kind of knowledge is key for a business. And if you don't have the knowledge, you can't manage it. Well, that knowledge is now data. And if you don't have the data for your business, you can't manage it. And so by doing this, we found that we have generally a huge amount of acceptance across our business partners because now we're going across and this is not just becoming a compliance project. This is becoming a transparency project that's now empowering other functions of the business to see their own you know, parts or their own views of the business just a little bit better. And what I'm hoping is not only will transparency drive positive change, but also we're risk scoring everything in the system. You know, we started with those initial models and every transaction had a risk and then every vendor has a risk. You know, every investigation has a risk quotient and they all aggregate. And by giving people access and having them start using it, but you're also showing them, hmm, compliance thinks this is a little bit risky. I'm finding a way that, you know, as a legal or trusted advisor to your you know, client base that starts using it, you're beginning to nudge and influence behavior because they see the data. They also see what you think is risky and hopefully you can start to influence decisions very directly in that way. Thank you. A terrific response. And you're setting the scene for something that I know will be very attractive to you know learn more about and try to experiment with and hopefully execute with our listeners. That said, can you describe for our listeners a change that took place as a result of the type of analysis that was done and really getting a better handle on the data that you had, you know, that these large volumes? Just a good example of an actual business change that took place as a result of having this data that likely wouldn't have taken place in an environment without it. Well, I mean, having this much data and this much transparency changes the nature of your conversations and senior management levels at the global level. So take, for example, you know, there's certain businesses within SAB Miller that use cash. And that's not surprising. Over a dozen operations across Africa, many different cash-based societies. Very few operations in ABI had cash. I think one thing our procurement group had done extremely well and our control groups had done phenomenally well was to remove cash out of businesses and even across China. Very little cash in the businesses. And we had discussions and were driving a project with control when we first were moving and it was to reduce or eliminate cash really to reduce and pragmatically, but to eliminate in most parts of the business. And there was then a debate over, okay, how much cash was there after 18 months? And you know, there were folks in different groups that thought, no, we put in our rules, we put in our methods, there couldn't be any cash anymore. And we're very quickly able to see in compliance, well, no, we actually see these cash-based transactions here, 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 here. You know, it's great that we put in those controls, but you know, we don't need to wait for audit. I can see them happening on a monthly refresh basis. And so it changes discussions kind of you know, basically like that. You just have access to information. You can make decisions much faster. You can make joint decisions and collaborate across functions that much quicker. 
but it changed things like investigations as well. There was an investigation that we did. I mean, like a lot of compliance officers, we look in the news and we might see reports of a case adjacent to us in business. In this particular instance, you know, reports of ethical and corruption violations in you know large sports institution uh, organization that put on sport. And we historically have done a lot of business with that organization. Prior to having this data analytics system, we conducted you know a fairly expensive exercise to prophylactically look and ensure that we didn't have any issues with vendors tied to you know, a growing corruption scandal. Now, it used to be that we did an investigation. You'd have your team of lawyers, probably external counsel, and you'd have like a call and say, okay, we're going to look at these 10, 20, 30 transactions, whatever. And they would run off and talk to another team of accountants who would then run off and talk to somebody in your business and get kind of transaction data. And then they'd come back and you'd have a meeting. You know, They'd report back to the lawyers. The lawyers would report back to me. And that's you know how investigations have been done for at least probably 20, 30, 40 years, right? Now, there's a lot of efficiency there, right? Typically, those groups of accountants and groups of lawyers are all working by the hour and, you know, you've had multiple conversations and you come back after having your initial session three weeks later and they report to you and find these transactions. Well, it usually took me about 10 minutes to remember what we're talking about, you know, what was the actual investigation about, another five minutes to say, okay, this is what we asked them to do, another 10 minutes to see this is what they found, and then they say, okay, in the last 10 minutes, so you go look for the next, you know, 10. And then they would repeat the three-week process. I can replicate that investigation with a very small team. I had a single private investigator after we had developed right because we wanted to replicate it on the SAP Miller side of the business because they had the same set of risks. And instead of having those teams of people and kind of endless chains of meetings that go on the infinitum, we you know, could look at the data and we could have an investigator tell us, these are the entities that touch upon the investigation. See, great. I could look at my data. I had a risk profile of all those vendors, a risk profile of every transaction within those vendors. And I could say, these are the two or three that we need to look at in this country. And those are the two in that country. And we should conduct interviews on those. So we cut the investigation costs for the exact same scope, actually probably a slightly larger scope, by about 90% to do the same investigation over again from before. And what I love about that too, is that shows that there could be more consistency as well. Is that a factor? I mean, that, you know, obviously using data, you know, applying the compliance targets for your organization more consistently. Is that a factor? For sure. And I mean, we can talk about targets. It means very specific things at ABM, but let's talk about consistency for a sec. And one basic question, as you know, you know, any CFO knows and any regulator knows, you see a problem in your business uh, and you conclude the investigation. One of the first questions you ask yourself is, do I have this problem anywhere else? That's exactly what this system allows us to do. Not only that, right? So we can take a look and say, oh, there's a vendor that looks like this. That was a problem. I can very quickly say, you know, tell you exactly where we might have the same exact vendor, you know, look alike in which countries and how long we've had them. But not only that, and this is what I'm most excited about about this project, is the system is learning. So one of the innovations of last year was not just to create these 12 separate dashboards, but also create 12 separate user workflows and create 12 workflows that allow you know, my analysts around the world, as they go in and look at what this machine is spitting out as risky, they adjudicate that risk. They do a little mini investigation and they either say, yes, this has to be a big investigation or no, this is fine. Now we're simultaneously working with some very smart people that know a lot more math than me. And as we build up those data sets, we can then build up models. And those models will then take the initial set of say, you know, we started with roughly 20 different indicators for a, a payment risk transaction. Um, those models now become, you know, 500 factors, everything from payment to you know, what specific keyword and what specific time of month with what specific country is, you know, probative of risk. And as this goes forward, these different dashboards will get smarter and smarter. People will use it. They'll see kind of the underlying data sets. They'll see issues with how we've harmonized. 
optimized and brought the data together, sure, but they'll also teach the algorithms to get better and more probative with time. So the system will, you know, in a sense, learn. That's terrific. Fantastic. Sounds like a a really terrific project, one that has been a game changer, not only for your department, but for the organization and and obviously leading as an example, right, of how other parts of your business can really apply data, apply machine learning, apply the advantages of that. Any other points you'd like to share with our listeners about the success of the project, you know, your experience in executing something of this size that was really focused on probably an area of data analytics that is not core. I know it's not core (laughs) to your, at least your law school experience and possibly your early legal career. Yeah, no, it's been a tremendous two years and I've just been able to learn so much about how data might work and how you can intersect, you know, 34 systems or bringing them together. I have to tell you, if I had to do it again, I'm sure we would make better decisions about how to run this kind of cross-functional team. We'd make better decisions about how to integrate the different parts of a working group from the data aggregation to the harmonization folks, to the, the folks setting the indicators, to the folks you know doing the puts, to the folks doing the machine learning. You know, As this goes, we just have a better sense of how these different component parts work together. I also have a better sense about how data works and you know basic and fundamental exercises and how to construct you know what sort of databases to construct and what are the limitations and pluses and minuses and these things I learn daily. I have no doubt we could have done it you know better, faster, cheaper if we had to do it again. But I think you know it can be done. And I think one of the most interesting areas of technological advance for multinationals now is I mean everybody has this problem with different data sets. I mean very few companies are of any size were able to have a single say ERP or accounting system or single any system for that they want to get truth out of and taking you know one or two or six or in our case 34 and some companies will say they have two to three hundred you know we have a kind of learned how to work with folks that are better at pulling that data and, and harmonizing it but b i think what lawyers should think about is you know historically when we looked at risk we kind of look at the same facts over and over again and just assume all facts are going to be equally available and then look at the other risks like the CPI score or whatever, and then you know, kind of use that as a, an assessment. What this has taught us to do is don't just look risk in the abstract or in the business in terms of the type of business, but look at the type of data available and how easy it is to get lots of different data sources and what risks and what insights they give you and prioritize your assessment there because it allows you to build a compliance model that doesn't just give you a snapshot. But if you build it where you have steady and long-term access to data, you can build models that will you know, last forever and grow and get smarter with time, much as our team is. That is a terrific last point and actually one that I'm sure will be executed on in your next project and in the next opportunity that you have to use this data. Matt, thank you for sharing your experience with our listeners. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you so much. It's been great to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.